We're going to be in Psalm 36 tonight, but uh, if, if we can, if we can actually go back to where we were this morning in Zephaniah for a moment. There's a good portion of the sermon I was not able to get to this morning, and it's, it never ceases to amaze me how sometimes there's just such a connection uh, between sermons, and there certainly is here. God is warning His people to repent. He's warning them that judgment is coming. And He calls them to look at the other nations, the destruction and the judgment they have faced around them as a warning to wake them up. In fact, we see that in Zephaniah 3, verse 6 where he says, I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins, I have laid waste their streets that so that no one walks in them, their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. So he's saying that he is, God himself has brought about this destruction. And in the, the next verse, I said, that is God saying, surely you will fear me, you will accept my correction. And the whole point of the prophet is this, is God has shown you that what he can do, he has shown you his omnipotent hand in bringing judgment as a means to wake you up. That's why that destruction took place. And he says, then this would wake you up, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. In other words, when you see that, it would snap you out of your slumber and say, we got to turn back to God. But then he says and makes this comment, but all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. Like in light of all that Jerusalem had in God's law, in light of the prophets coming to them, and warning them of this impending judgment and all of the examples God had given them, they still ran towards wickedness and evil. And you, you wonder why. Why is it that people do that? Well, I think Psalm 36 begins to answer that for us. It begins to provide an answer because to us it's, it's ridiculous. God tells you, this is what I will do. He does it, and you still keep on fighting against him. That's insane to us. And so we get into the doctrine of sin this, uh, in, in regards to the heart of humankind. And I referenced Genesis chapter 6 in verse 5 where we see what the intentions of man's heart is, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually all the time. That's a doctrine of sin. I want to read to you from the Confession of Faith so we can get a quick biblical overview of the doctrine of sin. This is of the fall of man and sin and the punishment thereof. And it begins with this, Although God created man upright and perfect, 
and gave him a righteous law which had been fit unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Man was created upright. Adam was created without sin. It goes on to say, Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who, without any compulsion, did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. We know the story that Eve is tempted and she, along with Adam, eat of the fruit. And what happens as a result of that? Death was promised. Well, the confession tells us, our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of the soul and body. That is the doctrine of sin, that we have inherited this from Adam, is that we in all our parts are inclined towards sinfulness. Goes on to say, they being the root and by God's appointment standing in the room instead of all mankind. That is, Adam was our representative. He stood in our place. The guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, meaning we are all the children of Adam and Eve, and because we are the children of Adam and Eve, we inherit that corrupted nature because of sin, because of the fall. Being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the severance of sin and the subjects of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. It goes on to say this, from this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. That's a doctrine of sin. Sometimes it's referred to as total depravity. It doesn't mean that I'm as bad as I could be. It just means that there's not a part of me that's unaffected by sin. That's the state of the natural man unless, as the confession says, Christ sets him free. There's a bondage to sin. That is this, is that our desires themselves are flawed. And so when you see that God sends these warnings to Israel, and he shows them this proof, this is what I'm going to do. The problem was, is they went after their desires because their desires were far greater than their fear of God, which they did not have. And so we see this in this psalm before us that actually in the first four verses answers 
the question. When God does this for the purpose of turning, but people do the opposite instead, and we ask that question, why do people do that? Well, the Lord through David tells us in verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Now, if we thought that the confession sounded really harsh on humanity, just read the words of God and what he has to say about men that have not been set free by Christ. Because this is describing the man that has not been set free by Christ. That they go after and they follow their own desires. But in contrast to that, we see this merciful God beginning in verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise." We see here that we are given a description of man, and in direct contrast of that, we're given a description of a merciful, gracious God. So why does man run after the desires of his heart? Well, we're given a glimpse into the human heart. You and I can see the wickedness of humanity just by turning on the news. We can see that. We can see wickedness when we go to a big city and are surrounded by it. We can see wickedness when we watch a secular movie or TV show or we listen to a lot of the music that is pumped out today. We can see the desires and wickedness of humanity. It's everywhere for us to see. But what God tells us here is he now peeks behind the actions and he looks into the heart of man and says, this is what's going on inside of man. Transgressions speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. That's what's going on inside the man. That's what's going on inside of everyone outside of Christ. It's deep inside them. He says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. 
And why is there no fear of God before their eyes? Because deep in their heart is transgression. And transgression was a military term for passing over a boundary. And so sin is then something flowing from deep within the heart and crossing over in an aggressive manner with an intentionality behind it. That's what's going on in the heart. That's what's flowing from the heart. That's the problem with the heart. And oftentimes when we read these words, we, we are so quick to do exactly what we see in verse 2, flatter ourselves and say, I'm not that bad. I know a lot of people that don't know Christ. That doesn't describe them. Perhaps, though, maybe we should look at the idea of sinfulness and transgression and wickedness through this lens. Do we do things for the purpose of God's glory? Do we do things according to God's will? Or do we do them according to my own will? We could do what would be socially accepted and applauded as good and morally upright, and we could say even, yes, that's in line with God's law, and an unregenerate person could do such things. But what is the motivation? What is the heart behind it? What is it that is the driving force behind it? Is it truly God's glory? Is it truly to see God magnified? And his law upheld, or is it for some other purpose? When we start to put things in those terms, we start to recognize very quickly that when we try to define sin based on perceived goodness in society, we have gotten away from a biblical category of sin. That's our problem. That's our problem, and that's why we are so quick to justify our own actions. That's why we're so quick to say, that person's really not all that bad. You know, throughout the New Testament, we see this idea that our former life versus the life in Christ. And just one example is Colossians 3 where Paul writes in verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. That is what is by nature that you have inherited. And he begins to to define it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And we might say, okay, I've passed that test. But I doubt it. But let's just say that. Well, he goes on to say, and covetousness. That is the transgression speaks deeply within the heart because that's where covetousness comes from. Covetousness is that, that summary statement of the second table of the law that everything out of covetousness flows over it, whether it's murder, whether it's theft, whether it's idolatry, it comes from a desire for my neighbor's things. He says this is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, notice what he says. In these you too once walked when you were 
living in them. That is the description of the unregenerate man that does not know Christ. That is who they are. But only by Christ are we rescued from that. So it's not a stretch to say transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart is the reality of the unregenerate man. That is if we could pull back the curtains and look inside of the one that does not know Christ, what we would see in their heart is that. It is who they are. And so, for this reason, because there is no fear of God... There's no, and this is a, a different weird word for fear, not the normal word that sometimes you would see as awe or reverence. This is dread. There, there is nothing there that would stop them when they see the warning signs. They're not moved by it. And so when we read in Zephaniah, why, despite the warning signs, they did nothing. Well, we're told here there, there was no fear of God. They, they lived as practical atheists. And when this is the, the heart of a person, they don't care about warning signs. Warning signs come and they're unaffected by them. When a person has no fear of God, the only thing that restrains that person is often a fear of consequence or the guilt. And certainly we know that God's law restrains evil in this society and is written on the heart of all of man. But what often is it that is used to restrain people is a fear of consequence, a fear of guilt, but not a fear of God and offending his holy nature. And when that is the state of a person, they live all the more inclined for sin. It's unaffected by it. And what's the result of this is verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. The unbelieving man lives as if his sin will not be discovered. The word flatters, it can be translated smooth. It's like it, he smooths it out in his own mind. It's a self-justification. In many ways, it's to believe, I actually won't have to pay for these in an ultimate sense. Sure, there might be consequences for my sin. There might be consequences that I, I face... In life, but there's not an ultimate consequence. What does this mean? This is to live as if God does not exist. This is to ignore the very first words of the Bible in the beginning, God. It's to live as if there is no God. It's also to live as if God is not present in this world. As if God is somewhere else not paying attention. What do we read in Psalm 139, verse 7? Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? The answer is, you can't. 
But to live this way is to live as if God not only is not present, but he's, he's not active in the world. What does it, the Bible tell us, though? He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Psalm 94, verse 23. But what do we know about God's activity in the world? We know this, is that the whole entire creation is held together in Christ. We are told over and over in Scripture that it is God that brings the rain. It is God that brings the sun. It is God that causes the grass to grow. It is God that is keeping that heart in your chest right now beating. So it's to live as if God's not active in the world. And it's really to live in this way, to smooth out our sin, to flatter ourselves that oh, God won't catch up to me. In many ways, it's to live as if my goodness shall outweigh my bad attributes, or my badness, if you will. In other words, it's kind of like if at the end of the day, when I have to meet God, He's going to have this skill, and on one side of the scale, my good deeds are going to be right here, and on the other side of the scale are my bad deeds, and just as long as my good is heavier than the bad, I'll be okay. By the way, do you know that that's how the Egyptians viewed eternal life as well? But yet that that idea of we'll be justified by our works, that's what we come down to, is we're not justified by God's grace, but we're justified by our works. What does God say? Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Let me ask you, in the book of the law, how much of that has been kept? Because it's, the requirement isn't some of it. The requirement isn't 99.9% of it. The requirement is 100% without fail. There's only one that has done that. To live and flatter ourselves and our sins and think that there's no true consequences for our sins is to live as if there is no consequences. But what do we see? The wages of sin is what? It is death. Not only do we enter into death and we die, but this second death comes with it. But that's what's going on in the unbelieving heart. Is that not only in his heart, deep in his heart, is there sinfulness, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. No one will discover it. And this teaches us something very important and shapes our worldview. 
is to live this way is to live as if there's actually no final judgment or consequence for my sin. Let us never remove the consequences of sin from our environment. Let us never remove the consequences of sin in our homes and in the church. What do I mean by that? Well, if in the church, if there is sin, confront it that it may be resolved and reconciliation takes place. That if you sin, there's consequences for that and you need to be confronted for it. But also in the family. You think of our culture today that in many ways has removed consequences for sin. That's happened in the home so often. You think about it in this way, and just let me give you an illustration. If there's sin in in child-rearing, but it's ignored, we are teaching our children to live as if there is no God and that they can get away with it. We're actually functionally, when we don't discipline our children, we're functionally training them to flatter themselves that their iniquity will not catch up with them. We're teaching them, in other words, to live as if there is no God. Actually, when, when children sin, that gives us a wonderful opportunity to share the good news of Christ with them, doesn't it? Show how, how they may be set free. But this also gives us, in a practical sense, an insight to man and to the nature of man. The nature and the, the pervasive nature of sin is itself. The believer, when confronted with sin, by God's grace will do something, will repent. The believer, when confronted by sin, will repent. But the one that does not know God's grace will function only out of guilt. Look at the difference between Peter and Judas. Both became aware of their sin. Peter repented. Judas went and hung himself. Guilt is not the same thing as repentance. The one that does not repent of his sins is one that flatters himself in his own eyes and says, my iniquity will never catch me. My sinfulness, there will be no consequences for it. doesn't stop there, though. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. And this first part, you could just simply sum this up. They can't be trusted in one sense. But the idea here is that one that lives in rebellion against God definitionally will live in rebellion against anyone that reveals their sin. If they're willing to rebel against God, whom they know in their heart exists, but they suppress the truth of it, 
and you and I aren't God, and that sin is confronted, they're necessarily going to rebel against the one that reveals it. It speaks of deceptive words here. And if we will lie to God, we will lie to others, we will lie to ourselves. Now, what does that mean, these deceptive words? I don't think that that necessarily means a person outright lies, but that they do not see themselves as a sinner, and thus they speak in line with it that they don't recognize it in themselves. You could think of a person that flatters this idea, as we see here, excuses for it, or, or rejection that it is even sin, or even worse, they mock the idea of it. Psalm 1 talks about the progression and sinfulness and how they end up sitting in the seat of scoffers. That is, that they live a life of mocking that which is sin. Is sin taken seriously today, or is it something that is made light of? Is sin, is sin accepted, generally speaking, in our society in a way that none of us have ever seen before? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's embraced. Many places it's okay in churches. But then when you look at it, there's a laughing at it. I think that fits this idea of deceit. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. If you, can, if you can make humor of it, then it's really not so bad, right? The next step is this. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. Eventually, he stops living according to the law written on his heart. And I want you to just notice the progression in this that we have seen. It starts in the heart, it's rebellion, and then it turns into smoothing out or flattering out of sin, and to moving to deception to protect oneself, to now this attitude of, who cares? Who cares? Who cares if I sin? That's what it says. He has ceased to act wisely. He has ceased to do good. Now, sin involves acting in an unwise manner. And if, notice the connection here, he has ceased to act wisely. In other words, that disposition of heart makes it impossible to live a life that is wise. What is the opposite of the wise person? Well, it's the foolish person. It's that foolish person. This is very practical, by the way, for us. Consider where you seek counsel. Consider where you seek counsel. There is always this, this, this struggle to go and seek counsel from the secular world rather than seeking counsel from God. And there's this appeal that maybe we can, maybe if I, if I listen and watch enough Oprah and Dr. Phil, I'll, it, I'll finally get it to click. Consider where we seek counsel. 
And consider what drives the wisdom of the world, what drives the wisdom of the world itself. Well, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, so that is a lie drives the world system. What is the standard for the world system? It is a transgression, a rejection of God as creator. Now, if wisdom is from God, living according to God's word is definitionally wise living versus living in rejection of it, and its principles is to live the foolish lifestyle. It gets worse. Verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed, and he sets himself in a way that is not good, and he does not reject evil. He sets into scheming. Now, let me ask you this question again. We're, we, we have the wrong gauge in how we understand sinfulness. We usually judge sinfulness on whether they were as bad as Adolf Hitler. And as long as they're not as bad as Adolf Hitler, oh, they're probably a good person. I'm sure Adolf Hitler was good to his mom. Does that give him a pass? We, we, we use the wrong standard. And so when we say, ah, they don't really plot trouble on their bed, people that I know that don't know God, but do they plot how to seek the most good for themselves rather than love of neighbor, love of God? What consumes their worldview? Is it themselves? And at what expense? What is it that drives them? When you begin to put it in those terms, you start to think of it differently. Again, this goes back to this idea of what's going on in the heart. Because someone doesn't actively go and kill people. That doesn't make them all of a sudden a good person. This shows us the nature of man. And that sets in many ways as, as just this great example of how merciful God is. Because what we see in from verse 5 through verse all the way through verse 12, is that this God takes those wicked people that are described here and He saves them. He rescues them. Notice what it says. It's a direct contrast. There's no, there's no like pause. There's no transition. It just goes from the description of man, verse 5, description right into God. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And those are meant to be read as, as parallel to one another. God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. 
That steadfast love is his covenantal faithfulness to his own people. It's that special love of God to those that he has called from eternity. What do we see in this? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, and with which he has blessed us in his beloved. That is Ephesians 1.5. In love, he predestined us. That is his faithful, covenantal love to his own. How Great it is. How your faithfulness it speaks of, that is that God is reliable. This God that sets his covenantal love on a people. And notice what it says of these parallel attributes. Extends to the heavens, it goes to the clouds, which means that it is beyond measure. It is incomprehensible. Now you go back to when David would have written this, he had no idea of the instruments that we have today that can measure things. And so when he points to the heavens, he's looking at something that is beyond reach, that is beyond comprehension, that would have been an absolute mystery to him. And he says, that is God's covenantal love. It can't be measured. It's infinite. It's incomprehensible. He says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Again, these are, these are like parallel or, or twin attributes. His righteousness is that he does always that which is right. And his judgments, it's not speaking of judgment, coming judgment. It's speaking of decisions that God makes. It's speaking of God's immutable decree. And these things are described as the great deep in the mountains, which means this is God's plan, God's righteousness. It is immovable. And what does this God do? Man and beast, you save, O Lord. Man and beast, you save. You see, the beauty of that statement is this, is we can talk about the attributes of God and study them throughout all that Scripture says, but God doesn't stop with a statement about who He is. He demonstrates who He is by what He does in saving a people. That He is merciful, that He is gracious, that He would save people that all they have in their heart is this transgression and rebellion against Him. But yet He still saves them. It's amazing. And that's why it leads us to this meditation in verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God? Why does he ask that question? Because it's this God that saves a people that are described in such horrible circumstances of this inherited sinful nature. Why is God's love so precious? Because he saved me. And if you were in Christ because he saved you and you didn't deserve it, You deserve His wrath. I deserve His wrath. I deserve eternal hell separated from God under the wrath of the Lamb. But how precious is His steadfast love that He would save me, a wicked, vile sinner, that I would nail Christ to the cross 
if it wasn't for His grace. How precious is your steadfast love. Let us meditate upon that. Not only that, as the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings, He offers us protection and security for all of eternity. What I love about the Gospel of John is it makes so clear that when we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. And what you notice when you study John over and over again, that idea of eternal life is not something off in the distant. It's something here and now. And look at how it's described here. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That eternal life is now. Whoever believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ has eternal life. It is given to them. And look at the benefits of it. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. And this is, this is the picture of the temple. This is the picture that would have been in the tabernacle. Um, and you would see they feast on the abundance of your house. Probably what's in, uh, in mind here is the, the sacrifice or the peace offering. And that we are able to eat of the best portions of it. That's the picture, is the abundance of grace that we're given. And what is this idea that you give them drink from the rivers of your delights? Showing the rivers flowing through Eden. That they're ours. How do we see the end in Revelation? And the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree water were for the healing of the nations. You see that return to Eden promised. For with you is the fountain, verse 9, of life. In your light do we see light. And what does that bring to mind? In him was life, and life was the light of men. And the Lord Jesus says in John 8, 12, Whoever follows after me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. This is after the feast where they would be lighting the lights and Jerusalem would have been lit up. And Jesus says, I am that light. And in him, that light is life. What an amazing contrast. Verses 1 through 4 tells us and describes those that are living in darkness, that are stumbling on their own feet. But in Christ, we have light. And with that light comes life. And salvation results in God's abiding presence with the believer. And that is the picture of the house and, and, the, and of Eden itself and this fountain of life and this light is God's presence. God saves completely and fully. He sets us free from the bondage of our sin. 
But that doesn't mean we sit back. For the psalm closes with a prayer. In many ways, we know and we believe that the perseverance of the saints, that, that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We believe that, in, in, that, that those whom God has called, he will keep. We believe that, but look at the prayer. This is a prayer of God's promises back to God. Continue your steadfast love. What do we already know? How precious is your steadfast love? What did we see? Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. We already saw how it's incomprehensible, how it's incalculable, how it's immeasurable. But then what is the prayer? Is praying this back that, God, may you keep me by this love that is incomprehensible. May you not let me go. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. It's not our righteousness, it's His righteousness. It's not a righteousness of our own. And He continues in this prayer, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive away, or drive me away. Let them not come after me. I'm, it's a prayer for protection, specifically for those in verses 1 through 4. Again, which shows us the nature of mankind and their desire to harm those that are in Christ. But the final warning is in verse 12. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to Rise, the one who flatters himself and flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. What is that one's end? If he doesn't turn to the Lord Jesus Christ with the empty hand of faith, there the evildoers fall, lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. That is their lot. That is the lot of everyone that does not come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That God himself will take them down from their high horse and flatten them. And they won't get up. But as we think of this, and we reflect on what we know of our own hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to ask this question, and it's really not stated in a question, it's an exclamation as an, oh, how precious is your steadfast love, O oh God. How precious is God's steadfast love upon us that he would send his son to pay the penalty for our sin, that he who knew no sin would become sin. That is a precious love that cannot be measured. May we never take it for granted. May we never forget it. Heavenly Father.